good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've been looking in chapters 11, this section of the book, beginning at chapter 11, going through chapter 14, where Paul's addressing a number of matters related to their conduct in the public worship. Uh, he's dealt with the uh, behavior of some of their women. He's dealt with issues related to the Lord's Supper. In chapter 12, he's dealt with challenges they're facing in the use of their spiritual gifts. And so now we come to this very famous and well-known passage in chapter 11, Uh, about love, and uh, we need to understand it in the context of this larger argument about the way they're behaving themselves in worship. Uh, I have to say, preaching on a passage like this, you feel like you can't win, in a sense. This is one of the greatest uh, pieces of scripture and and writings, perhaps, that ever been written, and so uh, doing justice to this feels like uh, we will have our work cut out for us, but we trust that Lord will speak to us through his word. So let's give attention now. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm actually going to read, uh, begin in the last verse of chapter 12, just to set the context. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May God add a blessing to his word. Well, as I said, today we come to what is certainly the most well-known passage in this book, uh, this letter, but perhaps in all of scripture, the love chapter. And if you listen to what the commentators say about this, they have a lot of good things to say. I'll just give you some examples. This is Paul's writing at its best. Or another says, one of Paul's finest moments. Another, one of the jewels of scripture. Another, a passage of singular beauty and power. And yet another, the greatest, strongest, deepest thing Paul ever wrote. 
And I put in your outline a Charles Hodge quote. He says, for moral elevation, for richness and comprehensiveness, for beauty and felicity of expression, it has had the admiration of the church in all ages. Its content is wonderful. Its form is beautiful. But we have to admit, it's not just the church that has found this passage to be quite striking and memorable. In fact, this is why even sometimes unbelievers will have this passage read at weddings and even sometimes at funerals. It is a truly wonderful piece of writing. And yet it's easy to be confused about what this passage means. Because Paul did not sit down to write a beautiful poem about love. Uh, That was not the purpose when he wrote this. He was not making this his magnum opus of writing, dealing with the theme of love. Paul was writing a letter to a particular congregation. And that congregation was young, it was vibrant, but it was confused about a number of matters. And Paul is trying to address their confusion, uh, particularly as it comes here in the book to their use of spiritual gifts, that they made much of their gifts. And I think we can relate to this because we are also very busy people interested in doing. And, uh, and so gifts really resonate with us. We're busy doing, whether we're at work or we're at home or we're in the church or we're in our school or the community. And sometimes it's easy for us to under-prioritize love, which is what was happening in Corinth. Paul is here telling them love is more important than all their spiritual gifts put together. Love is essential. The gifts are helpful, but they're not essential. Love is essential. And furthermore, he tells us here that love cannot be divorced from God. And one of the things, that one of the reasons you can hear this passage at even an unbeliever's wedding is because it doesn't mention God. You don't see God specifically mentioned. And yet to understand this passage in its context, we realize that you can't have true love, like is described here, apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ. So as we look at this passage, I don't want you to be looking at it as a helpful helpful hints for me to be a better husband or wife or something like that. It certainly has much to say about how we love each other. But it's talking about something else primarily. It's talking about love as the essential element of your life and your ministry, both now and forever. And so therefore, this passage calls you to love one another as an extension of Jesus' perfect love for you. And children, if you would like to draw a picture for me this morning, you could draw a picture of maybe how you could show love to another person, either in your family or in the church, a picture of you showing love, uh, as Paul describes it here, to someone else in the church. Well, if you'd like to follow along in our outline, you'll see the first thing we want to notice is that your gifts are meaningless if they are not exercised in love, in verses 1 through 3 of this passage. Now remember, uh, Paul in chapter 12 explained uh, what the gifts are for. He says that you've been given wonderful diversity of gifts. Uh, You're one body. You use those gifts so that the whole body benefits. And as he finished chapter 12, he says, earnestly desire the best gifts. And I think what he means there, the best gifts, those that are most helpful for the other people in the church. 
But then he goes on to say in chapter 12, verse 31, and yet I show you a more excellent way. I'm going to talk to you about something far more important than gifts. The, the Greek word that's translated there, more excellent, is the word from which we get hyperbole. And uh, children, I don't know if you know, hyperbole is like uh, ex- over-the-top exaggeration. And so the idea here is that this is something that's far beyond in another category, in another league altogether. You're all focused on your gifts, and I want you to think of something that's far more important, way beyond your gifts, and that thing is love. This is what he wants to address with them. So he says in the beginning of chapter 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Now remember, it seems like in Corinth, the people were quite taken with this gift of speaking in tongues, which we know from the book of Acts is this miraculous ability to speak in foreign languages. And uh, they were able to preach the gospel in many foreign languages, these people that had never studied these languages. So it was a miraculous gift. And we don't know exactly how this was being practiced in Corinth. We're going to look at that more next week, Lord willing, in chapter 14. But Paul says here, even if you're speaking a foreign language or even a heavenly language, the language of angels, and if you're doing that without love, you are no different than a clanging cymbal or a resounding gong is one of the translations. So you take a mallet, you hit a piece of metal, it makes a noise. That's all it is, even if you're speaking in the language of heaven, if you are not doing it motivated by love for God and love for the people around you. Now you remember in chapter 12, he listed a number of gifts, and he always listed tongues last in those lists. And the reason he was doing that was to tell them, Yes, tongues is a gift, but it's not the most important gift. It's not the first gift, uh, and, and it's, I will list it here in this list. It's not the only gift. It's not the key gift. Here he lists it first because, of course, this is the thing that they're focused on, and he wants them to understand you can have this gift to the highest possible degree, but if you don't love, you're nothing more than just making noise. You're a noisemaker. You're an air horn would be the equivalent of what he's saying. Children, if you know what those are, you're just making noise. It's not helping anybody. It's not a blessing at all. And then in verses 2 to 3, he goes on to mention some of the other gifts that they were very much uh, enamored with. He says, though I have the gift of prophecy, and though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith that could, could move mountains. So this is a supernatural kind of faith. Um, And he goes on in verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the four, so radical acts of self-sacrifice, I give away everything to feed the the poor, or I give my body to be burned, sort of uh, harkens back to um, Daniel's three friends, you know, having that kind of commitment to the Lord to sacrifice everything for the honor of God. If I have that kind of faith and that kind of courage, and I do not have love, he says, I am nothing and it profits me nothing. It's worthless. That is really a radical statement. And I think it runs against our nature because we all want to hang our hats on what we do, what we have done in the past. Right? Why should I listen to you? Well, let me tell you about all the things I've done in the past that make, make it so you should listen to me. 
that I have credibility. What we have done in the past or what we are doing now, that's what we want to hang our hats on. Do you hear what Paul is saying, to, what he's saying to me? He's saying to me, if you preach faithfully in your congregation for 17 years, but you don't have love, you are nothing. That's what he's saying to me. He may be saying to you, if you memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but you don't have love, if you read through your Bible in a year, but don't have love, if you disciple another person, but don't have love, if you teach in the ESL class, but don't have love, if you volunteer in the nursery, if you join multiple committees, if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you do any of these things, but you do not have love, it profits you nothing. It profits you nothing. That's an amazing thing for us to think about. Jesus says in another place that in the day of judgment, many will come to him and say, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The scripture tells us it's possible to be talented. It's possible to be very busy. And yet it's possible to do these things without genuine love for God and for his people. Now the Corinthians were a real church. They did love God, but they were not loving one another in the fellowship by the way they acted. And this is a reminder to you and to me, your gifts are meaningless if they're not exercised in love. But secondly, we see here in this passage that love manifests itself in genuine other-oriented actions. He, he describes in verses 4 to 7 what love is. What are the characteristics of love? And this is helpful for us to understand. And he does this in a really interesting way. He says, love is. And he goes on and lists 15 different things. Some of the things that love is, some of the things that love is not. It's almost like he's describing a person. And sort of these are the qualities of love. And we could spend weeks going over this. We could have a sermon on every one of these aspects. We don't have time for that. But just think about these as I read through them. So he says, love suffers long. That could be translated patient. Love isn't in a hurry. Love is kind. There's a kindness. There's a gentleness to love. Love does not envy it does not parade itself. That could be translated boast. It's not puffed up. That could be translated arrogant. These things are totally inconsistent with love. Love does not behave rudely or unseemly. It does not seek its own. That could be translated, it doesn't insist on its own way. Children, when we insist that we have to have it our way, we are not loving. Right? That's not a characteristic of love. It's not provoked. Some of the translations there are easily angered or irritable. Love is not irritable. Love thinks no evil, or another translation there is keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep a list of things other people have done wrong. 
Love does not rejoice in inequity, or that could be translated delight in evil, but in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That doesn't mean love is gullible. That means love's attitude toward you is hopeful. It's optimistic. It doesn't give up on people. And it would be well worth our time to take some time to go through this list and ask ourselves, how well does, does this passage describe me? Because I think that would be a challenge for all of us. Husbands, are you easily angered or irritable? That's not love. Wives, do you keep a record of wrongs? That's not love. Children, do you celebrate when one of your siblings fails? Or do you insist on your own way? That's not love. Do we as a church give up on people? who don't seem to be coming along like we'd like them. Now recognize this is not an exhaustive list of what love is. Again, it wasn't Paul setting out to give us everything we wanted to know about love. But it's also not an arbitrary list. He's listing these things particularly because this is where the Corinthians are falling short. They're not loving each other in this way. And what you should notice here is that as Paul describes genuine love, it is the antithesis of what our culture says love is. Our culture says love is a feeling, love is something that happens to you, love is something that you fall into, you have no control over. But as Paul describes it here, love is purposeful action for the benefit of others. To paraphrase the great philosopher Forrest Gump, Love is as love does. That's what Paul's saying here. Love is as love does. Or Gordon Fee says, love is not an idea for Paul. It's not even a motivating factor for behavior. It is behavior. To love is to act. Anything short of action is not love at all. And that's why the Bible tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How do we know God loves? Because he gave, he acted on our behalf. So the problem in Corinth was that the spiritual gifts and their use in the public worship had become a forum for self-promotion. The people were, were trying to display their own gifting and it was all about self. This is why Paul's talking about arrogance, boasting, and the like. And this was leading to division in the church. And people were celebrating the gifts they had and looking down on the gifts that others didn't have or what they did have. And it was creating a lot of strife. And Paul is telling them that their gifts don't accomplish anything unless they are exercised in a loving way that puts the needs of others first. And so we need to understand the context for the passage is love expressed in the church. And love to be expressed properly must contain concrete actions, right? To encourage others, to bless others, to serve others, to assist them. No matter what you're doing in the church, you're called to love 
the other people. The theologians talk about three marks of the true church. It has to have right doctrine, it has to have the right administration of the sacraments, and it has to have church discipline, exercise church discipline. Those are considered historically the three marks of the church. I would submit we, we need a fourth mark because a, a true church is a fellowship of love has to be characterized by love. If there's no love in the body, you do not have a healthy, faithful church. And I'm thankful that we have such a body. After this service is over, uh, an interesting phenomenon is going to take place. And it's not going to be everyone streaming out of here as quickly as they can to get to their car and get to a restaurant or whatever. People are going to stay and talk to each other and do that, not under duress, but willingly, joyfully, enthusiastically. And I know some of you introverts will be sneaking off to your cars, and I'm going to be watching okay, <laughs> after this. Another thing that's going to happen is you're going to see a, a number of young children with their Bibles come over to different adults and those adults are going to sit down and listen to the children's memory work as they help the children as they memorize scripture. That is an act of love and support. Our church also has a program where families, different families in the congregation have adopted seniors in our church. And so all the seniors in our church, I think, that are participating in this have sort of uh, grandkids by adoption through this program. And there's many, many ways that the church shows this love, even your commitment to pray for each other in times of need is a, is a response of love. And we should give thanks for that, and we should pray that God would continue to help us love more. To love, we engage in genuine, other-oriented action. And thirdly, we see here that although they are important, your spiritual gifts are for this life, are for this life. We see this in verses 8 to 12. He says in verse 8, love never fails. It never falls to the ground. It perseveres. It endures. And he contrasts that then with some of these gifts. He says, where, where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there's knowledge, it will vanish away. These revelatory gifts will not last forever. Uh, we think that some of these extraordinary gifts were probably uh, only lasted through the end of the first century after God had written the New Testament. We had a completed revelation. They were no longer necessary. He goes on to say we prophesy in part in verse 9. So any prophecy, any, anything we know, this side of glory is partial. We don't have complete knowledge. We would all admit that. Our best knowledge is still partial. Verse 10, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part is done away with. So there is a time coming when the gifts, whatever the gifts are, and she's mentioned a few here, but whatever the gifts are will not be important. They will not be necessary. And, and so we ask, well, when is this? And I, I do want to mention here, there are some commentators who argue that this is a reference to the completion of the Bible, saying that that's what perfection that's coming is the completed canon. And I think you can make an argument for that, 
But I think it's hard to argue that's how the Corinthians would have understand, understood it at that time. That, oh, Paul's telling us that the New Testament's going to be written here. I think they would have understood this in a very different way. When is it that perfection is going to come? When is it that we are going to know? Uh, now we see in a mirror, as he says in verse 12, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And that seems to be speaking about when we come face to face with the Lord at our death or, as, or if the Lord comes back before that. Now, when he refers there to speaking face to face and looking at a mirror, he's probably quoting from Numbers chapter 12, uh, verses 6 to 8, where God says about Moses, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. I speak to him face to face, even plainly, not in dark sayings, not dimly. And he sees the form of the Lord. Moses had a unique relationship with God. Moses talked to God face to face. And isn't this what the Bible says all of God's people are going to experience in glory? We are going to communicate with the Lord face to face. As it says in Revelation 22, his people, they shall see his face. We will be in the presence of the Lord. And that's when as verse 12 says it, we will know just as we are known. And when he talks about the mirror, he's talking about the difference between direct knowledge and sort of indirect knowledge. Corinth was actually famous for its mirrors, and mirrors in those days were polished metal. And so they would work as a mirror, but it wasn't the same thing as seeing someone face to face. And this is what he's talking about. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul writes, For we walk by faith, not by sight. See, in this life, our knowledge is always partial. Our vision is partial, and we walk by faith. But a time is coming when we will walk by sight, when we will be in the presence of our Lord, and we will know all that we need to know. Matthew Henry, in speaking about this, says, there will be no need of tongues and prophecy and inspired knowledge in a future life because then the church will be in a state of perfection, complete in both knowledge and holiness. God will be known then clearly and in a manner by, in, in a manner by intuition and as perfectly as the capacity of glorified minds will allow, not by such transient glimpses and little portions as here." That's what he's getting at, that there's coming a time of complete and direct knowledge of God. Now, children, if, um, if you saw a child lying on the ground screaming and throwing a tantrum, uh, what would you think? Probably think that's not good, right? So let's say it's a toddler on the ground throwing a tantrum. You'd think that's not good, but you might think it's a, it's a toddler, it's a young child. I've seen that before. Uh, I've probably done that before, so I understand when that child gets a little older, he or she will learn. Now, if you see a 10-year-old lying on the ground, crying and screaming and having a tantrum, if you see that, you're probably going to say, whoa, that's not right. Something's seriously wrong 
you might be so bold as to say, hey, stop acting like a baby, right? That's how babies act. That's not how 10-year-olds act. Paul is saying something similar here in this passage to the Corinthians. In verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. What he's saying there is, you Corinthians, you're in love with your gifts, but you completely lack love. Don't you realize that your gifts are temporary? Your gifts are temporary. They are not what defines you as a believer. You are preparing for a life in which the gifts which are designed to help the church on the earth are going to be no longer needed. You're preparing for a life in heaven. Stop acting like babies. That's what he's saying to them. So you and I, we should be very thankful for the teachers God's given us, the mercy ministry God's given us, but we should also understand in heaven we don't need teachers. There is a day coming when we don't need mercy ministry. These gifts are to help us serve one another and serve the Lord while we were here in this fallen world. But when we're in the reality, those things are not needed. So see, he's telling them, your gifts are important. We need them now, but that's not what eternity is all. It's not about you using your gifts in all of eternity. In fact, fourthly, he says, your love, your love, that's what's essential now and forever. Verse 13, these things, three things abide. They remain faith, hope, and love. These things are not gifts They're another category of things. They're they're like character. They're fruit of the spirit. They're greater than the gifts. So this is why I said these things are greater than the gifts. Faith brings salvation. Hope that comes from salvation as we look to the future. But he says the greatest of these is love. Love is greater than faith or hope. And we might say how? In what way is that true? Partly it's because love is of the very essence of God's nature. 1 John 4, 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Or as Simon Kistemacher says, love is eternal because it is one of God's attributes. Think about that. God doesn't have faith. God doesn't have hope. But God is love. And God loves And this is why love is uniquely special and eternal. And Matthew Henry, again, this one isn't in your outline, says, In heaven, faith will be swallowed up in vision and hope in fruition. There is no room to believe and hope when we see and enjoy. And he goes on to say there, that in heaven, we're going to be perfected. And for the first time, we will be able to love God like we should. And at the same time, we're going to be able to love other people like we should. And everybody else in heaven is going to be perfected also. 
And they're going to be loving each other and God perfectly. Because what a vision that is. Human beings made perfect in their ability to love. And Henry goes on to say, there won't be anybody not perfected there. There's there's not going to be any unloving person there. This is what God has in store for his people. And this is why you and I need to value love more now. Love is what is eternal. We often praise people for their gifts. That was a great lesson you taught, we would say. Do we ever say, that person is really loving? That person really loves well. That's where our priorities should be. Love is undervalued. Paul reminds you, this is the thing you're preparing for, to love throughout all eternity. And so you enjoy a glorious foretaste of that as you love now the people around you. Your gifts are for this life. Love is eternal. And then finally, you're called here to love others as an extension of Jesus' perfect love for you. There's something else going on in this passage that we need to understand. It's not just that he's saying, hey, start loving each other. You need to work harder at this. He's saying something very significant about love. And he uses a Greek word for love here that you're familiar with called agape, right? You've heard of that word. In the Greek language, there are about eight different words that could be translated love. Some of them describe a love between friends. There's a love, the love of a parent for a child. There's romantic love. Uh, There's love that you would have for your country or for a, a favorite activity you like to do. There's lots of words for love. And then there's this word agape, sacrificial love. And that word was not commonly used in the culture until the New Testament was written. The New Testament writers took this word for love and they made it the operative word. It's used about 116 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 75 times. Because this is the love that uniquely comes from God. Agape is so tied to the New Testament that some people call it Christian love. But it's a love that describes God. I put a quote from Leon Morris in your outline. It is love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought whether they are worthy or not. Or as Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what agape love is. It's deliberate love. It's not love that's based on what somebody deserves. It's not love that's motivated by self-interest. It's love that comes from God. It's a uniquely divine love. This is the love that was manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ, who left heaven 
and came to earth to live among his people, to die in their place. It's the love that's manifested when Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's, it's an otherworldly type of love. And Jesus is the one who perfectly embodied this love every minute that he was here on the earth. Jesus is the one who is long-suffering and kind. He is the one who does not envy or boast. He is the one who's not proud or rude or self-seeking or irritable. He doesn't celebrate in evil, but only in the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And Jesus is the one who never fails. And he was completely and utterly perfect in all of those aspects of love. This is what this passage is, a beautiful description of God's love for sinners. And so we have to understand we are not capable of this type of love. This is not in our nature to love others who are unworthy of love. John writes in 1 John 4, 10 and 11, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You could memorize this whole passage, this whole chapter, but you are not going to be able to live this way unless the love of Jesus Christ changes your heart and makes you into a different person and enables you by his grace to love others. You think about it. You and I, we don't deserve the love of Jesus. But the Bible says Jesus has loved us since before the foundation of the world. And because he's loved you, you can be forgiven of all of your failures to love. And because he continues to love you and he gives his spirit to you, you can be enabled more and more to love in this kind of way, a sacrificial way that's directed toward others. He's put you in a church. He's put you in a context where you can love others. And he wants you to use your gifts, my friends, but he wants you to use them in love, desiring to see the blessing of the people around you. And you do this in the hope of knowing God's love is going to make you perfect. And you are going to love throughout all eternity your perfect God and your perfect fellow believers. And you have an opportunity to experience a taste of that now as you love one another. Love is the essential element of your life and your ministry now and forever. So love Love as an extension of Jesus' love for you. And let's ask God to help us. We need his help in practicing this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this beautiful passage, which we confess in some ways is so far beyond us. But we pray that you'd help us to understand this passage in its context. It was written to believers who were gifted and they were active and they were doing all kinds of things, but they weren't loving each other well. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see how important love is 
and to recognize that the kind of love that's described here is the love of Jesus for us. It is the love that only comes from you. And we confess it's not in our nature to love people who are unworthy of love. It's not in our nature to love without seeking something in return. Lord, how we thank you that Jesus loved us in this way. He didn't love us because we deserved it. He loved us because he had committed to love us. And we thank you that he showed his love to us by coming and living and dying for us. And we pray, Lord, you would help us to put the the meaning of this passage into practice, that we would learn more and more to love one another in this body and to recognize that love is eternal And we pray that you would help us to be preparing for eternity, even as we love one another. We thank you for the love that you've given our body in Christ. We thank you for the tangible evidence of of that that we experience almost on a weekly basis. We pray that you would continue and help us uh, still more to love. And we pray that you would bring more people into our fellowship that might join in our love. We pray for our... uh, our our week ahead that you would guide us and you would keep us and we pray that the Lord's love would be at work in our lives for we pray this in Jesus name amen and now we'll return we'll return thanks and praise to the Lord by singing from Psalm 116 now we're going to sing these last two from the red or uh, maroon colored psalm book that you should find uh, in your pew or under your chair we're going to sing Psalm 116 uh, first in response to God's word Psalm 116, Selection A. I love the Lord because he heard my supplicating plea. And while I live, I'll call on him who bowed his ear to me. As the psalm goes on, it talks about the Lord delivering his servant from death. Uh, Stanza 3, you have released my soul from death, my eyes from tears kept free. And because of the Lord's saving grace, we are able to love him and to love others. So let's stand and we'll sing of this love.